We have sung some mighty truths this morning. Lord, uh, we are now in the midst of busy summers. We, Father, have many things, many of us have so many things going on in our lives, both practically, but maybe even emotionally. So I pray, Father, by the power of your Spirit, you would help us all to be right here, right now, with our minds and hearts in your word, where we are going to find the change and the help and the strength that we need. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The story of Louis Zamperini is one of my favorites. It's really a story everybody should know. But to give you a very small picture of his life, he fought in World War II and was captured and taken to a Japanese intern, uh, a prison camp, a prisoner of war camp. But while he was there, he was tortured by a man simply referred to as the bird. And it, it, there is a movie out there called Un, uh, Unbroken, but it doesn't really give justice to what happened to him. And if you read the book, some of the things that you read about that happened to Louis and were done by the bird are very hard to read. Of course, the war ended and the prison uh, was shut down. He made it through and was sent home. Yet what happened to Louis followed him. What happened to Louis, the things that the bird did to him followed him into his marriage. And followed him into his parenting. It followed him into his work. Louis was haunted by what the bird had done to him. And only found liberation when he found Christ. For many Christians, we have sins that follow us everywhere. This comes in guilt over things we've done, things we struggle to believe, things that we don't think we can be forgiven for. Sins that no matter how hard we try, they keep showing up. They keep inhibiting our life. They keep interrupting our walk with God. Now, in the last section of Psalm 119 that we looked at, we looked at the psalmist talking about the pressure from the outside world. Here he's walking with God, and because of uh, he lives in a world, as, as the world has always been, that puts pressure on him not to walk with God, he has trouble. It's hard. He wants to walk with God. He wants to do what God wants him to do. But he has pressure coming at him from the outside of him to not follow God. And so he's asking in the last section for the Lord's help in understanding, asking for the Lord's strength to deal with the pressure that comes from the outside in his walk with God. That pressure Jesus told us was going to come. Not just simply in the form of persecution, but just simply trying to walk in a direction the world is not walking. But in our text today, we find something so much harder than facing that pressure. And that is dealing with our own sin. Our sin follows us everywhere. Into our marriages, into our workplace, into our parenting. This reminds me of the old joke about the man who got lost on a desert island. 
Many years later, he was found, and when they got off the ship and they asked him, he said, they looked on the beach and there were three buildings there, and he said, they asked the man, what are the three buildings? He says, well, the first one there is my house. He said, the second one there is my church. He said, the third one there is the church I used to go to. Sin has followed him everywhere. The Bible tells us that our biggest problem before we become Christians is sin. And the Bible tells us our biggest battle after becoming a Christian is going to be sin. And so what I want to give you this morning are four principles concerning the believer's battle with their own sin. And then at the end, we'll make some application. So four principles about our battle with our own sin, and then we'll make some application at the end. Number one, number one, every believer struggles with a stubborn sin. Maybe you need to put an S on the end there. Every believer has struggled with stubborn sins. Hebrews 12 tells us as Christians that we need to make sure our feet are not tangled, that there is no weight holding us down. Verse 29, the psalmist says to God, help me put away the way of lying. Now, I don't think he's actually asking for help to not be a liar. The reason for that is, first of all, he uses the phrase, the way of. He's talking about the way he's living. He's talking about something that is a part or showing up in his life. The second reason I don't think he's talking about being a liar is because Typically, in the Psalms, when it comes to lying, we're using the word tongue. He doesn't use that word here. What I think we have is really a general understanding, an acknowledgement that there is an issue, or maybe even issues, that have infiltrated and influenced his life. Could be that he has a struggle with a personal bitterness. Could be that he has a short temper, a problem with laziness, an addiction, something. But the point is, is that there is something, some sin in his life that keeps showing up, keeps affecting the way he lives, keeps causing him to make detours in his walk with God. Now, the idea also has two things here. The first idea here is that the sin is generated from inside of him. James tells us that. The sin he's struggling with is something that is uh, conceived inside of him it gives birth on the outside of him the idea is if he's tempted to steal his heart decides to steal and then he steals it's conceived and then born the other idea is not just that it comes up from inside of him but he asks for help when it comes to being uh, uh, for relief from around him he wants to be rid of this sin but it's hard to be rid of a sin where the world tells you it's okay or even encourages it. Think of if, uh, if you've ever known somebody who's tried to quit smoking. It's hard enough to deal with the cravings that come naturally with somebody who has spent a great deal of their life smoking. It's one thing to deal with those cravings as they come up from within. It's another thing to deal with it when you're surrounded by people who smoke. Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, he recognized not only his own sin, he says, I am, you know, I am unclean, he says. But then he mentions that he is also surrounded by people with unclean lips. And so the first thing I would say to you is the first principle is understanding that every believer is dealing with this. 
And we'll mention it in a moment, but 1 John tells us that if we don't admit to that, we do become a liar. Number two, the second principle would be this, that stubborn sins will rob us of joy. Stubborn sins will rob us of joy. Verses 25, 26, and 28. We start with this picture of cleaving to the dust. The Bible says dust is what we are made of. Dust is what we will return to. Dust is used often to represent us as weak. Dust is the amount of strength that the psalmist has. Dust is where the serpent crawls. It is the picture of earthiness. What do I mean by that? To be earthly-minded. The psalmist is, 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 is crying out to God saying, I don't have the ability to rise above my earth-mindedness. Think of it this way. It is the ability to, to be hungry and not be able to rise above feeling hungry. Or maybe you're offended and it's the inability to rise above the offense, instead only thinking about getting revenge. Of feeling anxious and only wanting to have more control. He's saying, I'm so earth-minded. It has taken away his joy. In verse 26, we have a confrontation. The psalmist says, I've declared my ways. The idea there is he's put forth his life for measuring. He knows he's not going to pass inspection. When we lived in West Virginia, one of the things West Virginians have to do every single year is got to make sure that their car passes inspection. It can only give off so much exhaust. It can only have so much rust. They have to pass inspection. And it's always, it was always interesting to me. I would talk to some of the guys in our church, some of the things they would try and do to make sure they passed inspection. Whether it's putting duct tape over a rust hole and then painting over it. Or using spray paint to try and hide some defect. They knew they weren't going to pass. And so that's the psalmist idea here. He's putting forth his life. And he's saying, I put it up. And he says, you answered me. Meaning the idea there is he's saying, Lord, for example, I measured my life saying I should not have lied. And the, and the, the Lord is responding with, yes, you should not have lied. Up to this point in this psalm, the psalm, the psalmist has made all sorts of commitments and he's measured his life and he's saying, look, I'm falling short. And then lastly, in verse 28, he says, my soul melts for heaviness. He is the I, literally the picture of the insides melting away as if one, uh, we might think of, if you've seen a movie that involves it, as if one was exposed to radiation. It's an interesting picture seeing what we know today about the direct effect of our emotions on our physical health. Stress and anxiety and grief can put great strain on the internal organs, can actually literally shorten life. Let me ask you a question. You ever been so emotionally broken that you felt like you were just water poured out of a pitcher onto the ground, never to be gathered up again? He has been robbed of joy. Number three, the third principle. Sin cannot be overcome without God's help. So we're all dealing with it. 
It's robbing of us of the joy that we can have. And so we say, what do we got to do? Well, we can't overcome it without God's help. We go back again and look at verses 25 to 27. The psalmist prays, quicken or give me life that comes from your word. We should know here that the psalmist doesn't ask for comfort. He's asking for more life. Life that comes by God's word. Consider the imagery here. If we go to the beginning of our Bible, all life that we see around us came about by the spoken word of God. And so the psalmist is saying, God, I want you to create life in me by your word. Now, he's asking the Lord to use the word, the word spoken, perhaps the word heard, the word played out. But he wants God's word to be before him, in him, around him. Because that is going to be the source of life. Verse 26, he asked God to teach him not only what to do, but how to do it. Not just to confess, but how not to sin again. I have to be guided, held like a little child. You see, the idea is, for example, if his stubborn sin is the idea of he has a, a short temper, he doesn't just want to know how not to have a short temper. He wants to know how to be patient. And he's recognizing only the work of God can take a man who has a short temper, change him, and make him into a man with great patience. Verse 27, he asks God to make him understand the ideas of deeper insight. To be rid of this stubborn sin, he can't just be a mile wide and an inch deep. He has to travel into the deep waters of God's word. We know this to be true. In the New Testament, the Bible tells us we're supposed to move beyond drinking milk and get into the meat. But he's not just looking for knowledge. For knowledge without a relationship produces nothing but bloated egos. Note, he says, then I shall talk of thy wondrous works. You see, the knowledge is there, but God has stayed at the center of his thoughts. To know but not have a relationship means that the knowledge is at the center, not God himself. This is how Israel would fail. They would see God do mighty things and then run headlong into idolatry. They knew, but they did not have a relationship. Now in verses 30 and 32, we don't really have a request for help, but really a reminder of why help is needed. The author walks with God. That's it. I need help because I walk with you. He knows the standards. He knows that the goal of the walk with God is perfect holiness. He knows the way to get there is perfect obedience. He knows the heaviness of the sin that is discouraging him from wanting to walk with God. He is stumbling, failing, coming up short, as we have seen. It has been the norm. But he's refusing to let go of walking with God. He wants help because he wants God. And then lastly, number four, the fourth principle. God's help is found in his provisions. God's help is found in his provisions. Look back at verse 28, 29, and verse 31. Verse 28 and 29, we have two requests that go together. The first request for strength, the second request for grace. The author knows that one does not come without the other. 
And many times in the Old Testament, the people of God would battle and they would ask for strength, but they only defeated their enemies when God was with them. Or you think about it this way. You don't get God's strength without getting God. You don't get God without getting his strength. We can say it this way. The strength you gain from reading your Bible does not become because you read words on a page. It's because you read God's word. And when you read God's word, you encounter God himself. You cannot separate the two. Verse 31, we have the same language structure as verse 25. Verse 25, the writer clings to the dust. Here in verse 31, he clings to God's word. I want you to think of a man who's been traveling in a great desert, finally finds some water. He clings to the water. Sin has dried him up. Every time it is promised something, it has always been a mirage. Every time he has thought that, the, that sin was going to quench his thirst, he has only found more sand. Yet here he returns to God's word, finds the provision of water. And he prays, put me not to shame. The idea there being that I want your promises to live up to what you have said. It is a comparison to what he has found to be the emptiness of sin. Every time he went that direction, he just found more dirt. Whereas when he went with God, he says, I want to always find water. So these are so he understands the only way he's going to make it is if God provides. So let's make some application. Number one, when it comes to sin, it cannot be simply managed. Dealing with sin is not like trying to lose weight. This is not just changing habits. He wants sin out of his life. And I think this is immensely important. I've told you many times, I've had people come to see me with an addiction to pornography. And it's typically men. And they've been given all sorts of strategies. Put this on your computer. Put your computer in this part of the house. Don't go here. Don't do that. And it gives the impression many times that they, they're, they're frustrated because they says, well, I'm supposed to be able to manage this. No! Sin cannot be managed. It has to die. You have to kill it. It's the old illustration from, you remember years ago, Siegfried and Roy. And I believe it was Siegfried. For years and years they had these pet tigers until one finally turned on one of them. And for many times the idea that we're going to manage sin is the idea of having that pet tiger. One of these days it's going to turn and it's going to attack us. It will never fear to fail to do so. Ever seen the old show when animals attack? And all the stupid people you might look at as a, why is that person keeping an alligator for a pet? Why does that person have a, a deadly cobra in a tank in their house? I mean, they were just waiting for it, weren't they? Sin cannot be managed. 
It has to die. The second application I would make is this. Sin disrupts our walk with God, and that should be our motivation. Sin disrupts our walk with God, and that should be our motivation. What I mean by that is we can be aware that if our struggle was perhaps a short temper, we can be aware of the fact that a short temper might be hurting our marriage. We might be aware that a short temper is helping or making us into a bad parent. We might recognize that our short temper is keeping us from a promotion at work. But all of those things only motivate us to manage our sins, to hide them, to put them away perhaps when we're around the right people, in the right place, doing the right thing. But the motivation to kill sin comes from a desire to have more of God because the reality is sin is always going to disrupt our walk with God. The battle with stubborn sins is a battle of the treasure of the heart. When we have a stubborn sin and we give into it, we are saying in that moment, the treasure that we treasure is whatever that sin has promised and not God himself. It is a battle of love. You will only defeat the stubborn sins in your life by loving God more. When he becomes your pleasure, the center of your desires, only then will you overcome the sins that you are struggling with. Your motivation to kill sin should be the fact that it disrupts your relationship with God. The third application I'd make is this. Sin is never overcome by the flesh. Sin is never overcome by the flesh. I've used this illustration before, but I'm going to use it again because it's a good one. A man who is overweight and addicted to food might be given a treadmill and then become addicted to running, and he might lose all sorts of weight. But the question is, has he been helped? No. He's still an addict. He's just moved from from being addicted to food to being addicted to a treadmill. And any time we try and deal with our sin under our own power, our own will, our own mental strength, we fail. We see a little bit of improvement, perhaps we try really hard and we see a little bit of improvement in one area. Guarantee you that sin will find its way out somewhere else. What you need is the strength that only God gives. It comes from his word, it comes from hearing it, from reading it, from being, having it preached to you, having it displayed for you. Seeing it in action. The fourth application I'd make is this. God's help to overcome sin is found in what he's provided. Seems like a repeat of point number four, but that's just it. Here in our text, the emphasis has been on God's word. Of course, the main answer is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Our sin is first overcome by the removing of judgment through faith in Christ. You understand that? We overcome sin. The first step to overcoming sin is the ability to remove the judgment of it, to take away its power to condemn us by faith in Christ. The Word of God is going to include the Holy Spirit because if we have the Holy Spirit in us, which we do if we put our faith in Christ, 
the Bible says or gives us the promise that the Holy Spirit is going to enlighten the Word. And it's going to include going to church on Sunday. You know why? Because the Bible says that God has gifted specific people to help you understand the Word. The answer to stubborn sins is found in what God has already provided. Sin is a stubborn reality. It is not fun to talk about. I don't have fun talking about it. I don't find myself thinking, well, everybody's going to feel good when they go home today. The Bible says if we say we have no sin, it makes us a liar. And I never understand why myself and why we as believers ever try to give the impression that we are the exception. That we're the ones who aren't struggling. There isn't an issue. All of us are dealing with sin in our lives in one way or another. And the reality is these sins rob us of the fuller joy we can have in Christ. And while sin is not the only reason we get angry and we get depressed and we get anxious and more, it is a reason. But these sins are not overcome by just trying harder. Sin cannot be killed without the help of God. God's help for sin has already come in so many ways. We just need to take hold of it. Through the Word made flesh, by putting faith in Christ, through the dwelling of the Holy Spirit and the enlightening of the Word, through the local church, where there in all those places we find the, the, the life-giving waters of God's Word, and we read it and we see it, and we, we are enlightened, and it's put on display for us. And that's how we will win. Not through our flesh, not by managing, but by by the word of God itself and the person of Christ and the power of the Spirit and the display of the local church. With that, let's pray. Father, sin is a hard issue because, Lord, we want to dismiss it. We want to think we're past it. Might think we got too old for it or too young for it. Well, Lord, it is a reality for all of us. And I pray, Father, we would not be a people who would want to mess around with it, keep it as a pet, put it on a leash, and manage it, but to kill it. That our motivation would be because we have a desire for more of you. And that we would not try to overcome it by our flesh, but through the provisions you have given us to overcome. I thank you for the clear in the open way this is talked about in this life of this believer in Psalm 119. May we take hold of this and go forward with it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.